by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. The exact handoff from the moment of slavery created everything that we're looking at. That's a series of law from the Lash Law to the um, Indian Removal Act. Like we're talking from 1830 to 1985. There are a series of laws that have laid out the structural oppression of my people. So I am happy to tell my newfound friends who love climate, who want to work on environmental justice stuff because it speaks to their heart that guess what? Every benefit that has been conferred upon you came at the cost of somebody else. Nice to meet you. I'm somebody else. Jamara is a native New Yorker and environmentalist focused on equity, access, and community. She develops capacity building programs and creates multimedia campaigns to dismantle, and I do mean dismantle, privilege and increase opportunities for vulnerable populations to access healthy air, clean energy, and a toxic-free economy at the local, regional, and national level. Tamara is the North America Director at 350.org, where she supports and is accountable to organizers and campaigners to on the United States and Canadian teams. As the leader of 350's programming in North America, she drives mission-critical work and organizational investments to build a multi-racial, multi-generational climate movement that is capable, and I hope we won't talk about that, capable of holding our <laughs> leaders accountable to science and justice. My dear sister, how are you doing? Are you fired up? Are you ready to go? I am. I am fired up and ready to go, which means I'm ready to make people feel uncomfortable and yet welcome. Okay. I'm so glad to be here. Well, that's what's up. <laughs> well, I, I see, right, and, and I can see you folks can't see you, but I'll describe behind you, you have a beautiful uh, set of artwork. Uh, describe what's behind you. It's a mural of some street paint that says uh, COVID is temporary, Wu-Tang is forever. Come on. <laughs> and part of why I make sure it's in my background is one, because I'm a native New Yorker. And two, well, they're, all of Wu-Tang is vegan. And so there's just so, there's so many levels of why this matters to me. And just really helping us to focus on the fact that we have been threatened with death every moment we've been alive. Mm -hmm. And we are still here. There are things that we build that outlast us. And so I, li I like to keep it up as a reminder of the fact that um, my artwork is urban artwork. And my, and my way of showing up in the world is beautiful, even if you don't see it hanging in the museum. Oh, I love that. So your first, and your most, probably one of your hardest questions you're going to get today, what's your favorite Wu-Tang song? Oh, my God, Triumph. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, but I'm going to go with Triumph. I like that. Because I, I thought you were going, going to break into the cash rules, everything around me. So I, I thought I, I thought so it was... <laughs> I, I feel like there's a story for each song, oh. but I but I feel like we're in the moment that we're in on the precipice of all of this transition. Triumph is the thing that that like it could come on anywhere, and I would just start nodding my head in the middle of <laughs> whatever I'm doing. It feels like it's capturing this moment. That's a fact, yo. So uh, for those who haven't heard that, for those of you of you on our climate side, so we have two sides: we have the hip hop side, <laughs> and we have the climate side. Hip hop side understood exactly what Tamara was saying. On the climate side, you probably say, what is she talking about? <laughs> and so <laughs> this go Google, you know, that and you'll you'll figure out what that is. Also, you can stop fronting. I saw you in the back of the club when we used to go out climate. People. Yes, there don't it is. Like don't, don't act like you yes. don't know Wu-Tang. Talk about it. You shouted it you in your car. Throw up the W. Throw up the Wu. Come on. <laughs> don't act like y'all don't know what talking about here. Y'all like, what are you talking about? We understand 350 parts per million in the atmosphere, but we don't understand the Wu. No, you understand that. That is, that is it. Man. So you are from New York. And um, I am. And you, I'm from Flatbush, Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. 
What part of Brooklyn? That's right. Flatbush. That's what's up. You know, I used to live um, and work in Brooklyn by Fulton Mall. Yeah. 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 So, and then uh, back in my days when I worked at the Hip Hop Summit Action Network with Dr. Ben Chavis and many others. Um, but for the for the, for folks who don't know you, they just now. But besides just what they see from you and your in your work now with Three Fifty, um, and before you, and before you were your in your activism size, who is Tamara Toes Olafson? Well, I can try to sum that up. But first thing I'll say is, in another podcast, we can talk about my relationship to the slave theater. We can talk about no. that another no. time. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> important. No, no, no. But, but, but no, ex- explain. So my father was a community police officer when they first tried that experiment in the 80s. Mm. And his beat was where the KFC is. That's not far from the slave theater. Mm. And when he died, so many people stood outside that it took us a whole extra day to bury him because his belief was that if you knew someone's grandmother or who they hung out with, that you could avoid confrontations with just about anybody. And so when I grew up with a man who was everybody's hero, largely because he he felt like the most dangerous thing he could do is fail to know where he was and who he was working with. Uh, As a community police officer, uh, he really worked hard to make sure he was a part of the place so he was from he's from the lower east side and so being a cop in bed was an entirely different world and so he became a part of the community so many people um said it that when he passed away they didn't realize what he was bringing because as a man who was uh almost six feet uh dark skin voice like barry white very handsome he had a lot of tools at his disposal mm-hmm. and he would tell me as a child that the thing that he could do that would be a failure is actually use his weapon because he had so many tools before he could ever get to that, that it would be a sign that he lost his mind or he was weak or he didn't know what he was doing and he wasn't going out like that. So as a part of his legacy, I couldn't walk through any neighborhood in Brooklyn without spending an hour getting through the street, talking to every single person. And because he was just always building with people, always in relationship. And what I am doing is a hybrid of what he did and what my mother does, which she's an environmentalist. Uh, she retired as a water protector on the first day of climate strikes in 2019. So everything that I am is a combination of his desire to be a part of community, like an organic part that feeds it and her desire to be someone who understands where your water comes from. It doesn't just flow out the tap. So the long version of, of like how I got here and who I am is that I'm just a hybrid of people who care about the community that they're in and show up doing that in different ways. So for me, that means I show up as an environmentalist. I'm an advocate for people and planet, Um, someone who professionally breaks things uh, and then rebuilds sometimes. Uh, And I'm a recipient of love from my whole community. So there's no, there's nothing magical about me. There's nothing mystical about me. I am only what happens when a community is allowed to love their children. And so I have aunties and uncles and play friends and cousins uh, up and down every street in Brooklyn, every alley in Brooklyn, every handball court <laughs> up and down Ocean Parkway <laughs> because, because the only way I could turn uh, what were some pretty extreme situations happening around me into a magical playground is to enjoy my environment. So, so of all those things, I'm just a you know, reflection of my community. Wow, that's amazing. As a Brooklynite, I guess, have, how, you used to go to Coney Island when you were a kid? <laughs> Coney Island, uh, Navy Yard pool. Let's see. My whole life was, was based on the, how far away I was from different pools. So my life at Marcy <laughs> Pool was mostly about avoiding getting dunked. My life at, uh, at Navy Yard Pool was mostly about avoiding getting scratched up on the shallow side. So like my whole life is mapped out by where they put the public pools in Brooklyn and, and seeing which day I could go to which one and get, and get out without getting into something. Oh, so. That's so funny. For those who don't know what she's talking about, that you just got to know that that's facts, what she's saying. Yes. Like 100. Yeah. Man. So you mentioned <laughs> your, 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 your father. Um, was he originally, is he, was he uh, 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 from New York originally or was he, was he from, was the family, where, where was he from? So thanks to the great migration, my family is from North Carolina, South Carolina, right. near, uh, near Florence, uh, a little town called Flemingtown. My people are the Flemingtown, that's all of them. 
that's yeah that uh, my grandfather owned 30 si- 30 uh, acres on either side of a road and for the most part we still do and he owned a funeral parlor and a school and a church and my grandmother was the math teacher who went to college in the 30s mm-hmm. so and so that's one side my dad's side of the family is all from alabama and they came up in the great migration so um he is i'm a second generation brooklynite on my mother's side and a second generation New Yorker on both parents' side, but they came, their parents came over, um, came up during the great migration, just like everybody else did. They snuck away in the middle of the night. And, and the real real on that is that my grandfather, my, my grandfather's brother was the youngest person executed in the Carolinas. Wow. And so as, as a result of that, my grandfather left to avoid being murdered. So, so, so his whole life in the North was about building something and escaping like this constant idea that other people's discomfort could risk your whole life. Man, you know, and I think people understand that legacy of the migration and how that plays out and who we are, what we're doing now, um, how we're still connected um, to the North and the South um, Mm -hmm. and what that means and how that, Definitely, uh, uh, I'm sure, uh, dictates our dietary as well. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure moms and can cook over there. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it's real serious. <laughs> yes, she, most of what she uh, loved only became famous two minutes ago. But yeah, most of my community's food is a use of everything. Uh, as people who grew their food on the land, had relationship to it, still do. They only converted from sustainable farming to tobacco when it became financially, you know, when they became able to do that. But having, my mom was one of like a 12 kids. So like some of that farming was just about making sure people could eat every day. And so what could grow, we did grow, we ate it. And I think our cultural heritage to our food it's just a sign that we can make anything good, like anything. You mentioned something about your mom. Was actually, that's, that's, a, lot of, a lot of folks don't have directly folks who are in, quote, the environmental standpoint, like a water keeper in that aspect. We have a lot of folks who understand the environment <laughs> and we understand what mm-hmm. it means to take care of, uh, what, it, what it means to eat from the land, what it means to be, you know, to, to try to conserve and put the towel by the door and, with the uh, the plastic with the windows, um, but 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 uh, but they may not they may not have been. It seems like your mom may have had a little bit of a head a head start on that, and that that had some impact on you. So I guess this question: What does the environment mean to you? Wow, uh, for me, it's the enabling conditions for what you become. Mm-hmm. It's the food. It's how it feels. It's the level of access that you have to whatever's around you and the experience that connects with your DNA to make you who you are. Mm. It's like some people describe it as you, where you live, work, play, and pray, but all of those things together represent the enabling conditions for what you end up being. We are nothing more than what we have been fed. And that's true whether it's air or water or um, yams or yucca, like we are what we have been fed. And so the environment are the conditions for those truths. Mm. And yeah, there's some parts about it that people like to fight about on TV and on camera and make money on and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, the environment is that, whether it's rural, whether it's urban, whether or not you are seen by people and farm the land, whether everybody makes a benefit of your stewardship, the environment is that thing. And I, and I cannot imagine um, how I could do anything other than that because I grew up with a woman who made sure I understood that the water that came out the tap didn't flood, didn't, wasn't magic. Like there was a whole system underneath it. I went to all the reservoirs. I saw that wow. you could fit a, several cars, a whole bunch of animals and a whole lot of other stuff at the one end where the water was coming out and none of that comes out the tap. <laughs> so as a kid, I was just like, do y'all realize how much of a miracle it is that this stuff is getting all the way into this? This building's a 20, 30 feet, uh, 20, 30 uh, um, stories high. You think the water just flows into here without a lot of work? So I, I really benefited from getting a view of what's underneath. Wow. Wow. So, so, let's, so let's add the word justice to that. And what is the environmental yeah. justice? What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's about the human struggle to, to find equilibrium. Like for all of us, I think there's been a misnomer. Uh, uh, you know, I never, I would never say anything, you know, evil of the dead relative to the EPA, but like the EPA's version of what environmental justice means is not environmental justice. Say that. That's its own. 
That's its own definition based on its resources of the federal government and how it moves that stuff about. Environmental justice is really about connecting people to not just being meaningfully engaged, but being involved in a concentric circle of discussion about what they are doing to avoid harm. And, that, and so that's like a consultative process that consistently happens that has to be readjusted all the time based on who's going to get hurt based on the decisions you make. And I think if we're doing anything other than constantly readjusting our framework, we cannot do environmental justice. And for my extra two cents, I don't think that entities can do justice work. I believe that people do justice work and entities can help if they are equitable. Mm. What do you mean by that? Uh, mostly because equity is about the movement of people and money. Mm. And those institutions outlast any person, any my lifetime, your lifetime, my children's lifetime, all of that stuff happens in small windows, but institutions outlast that. So what they can do is make sure that they're constantly assessing who gets hurt and then moving resources of people and money to solve those problems over and over mm. again. With the guidance of folks who have real opinions and expertise about what that means, justice can be done, but it doesn't happen inside of an institution. It's like giving someone a screwdriver and asking them to build the Taj Mahal. Like, like it's just a tool. And so you need the one to do the other. And I think it's a fallacy. Like any organization that tells you it's doing justice work is selling you something. You should run away. Mm. No, I, I, I definitely hear that. And speaking of the, uh, the larger institution, uh, what we're dealing with now with, well, actually, before I get to that, how do you feel about this election? Uh, I feel like I can't wait for it to be over so we can get into this next fight. Uh, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to, again, be showered with uh, people's appreciation for what Black people have done to continue holding the line. Um, I'm excited to see what a Black woman does as the vice president. I'm super excited to to have whittled down uh, through many folks who have tried to to water down what climate justice could do for people, what what the work of justice means, what climate really means at the end of the day about moving people and resources. We have moved through years of fighting the establishment to get them to really hear us and recognize that they can do what we're asking them to do. So this election feels like. Um, the next phase in a conversation about whether or not these agreements that we were born into are going to work for us. Mm. So I, I look forward to fighting with the people I've been fighting for. No, I definitely understand that. As a black woman, how do you feel about this moment? Not this moment of just, which is powerful um, for um, Kamala Harris and just in general, but, but for all the black women who, who literally put this election on their back, like literally <laughs> the black women from Natasha Brown to Stacey Abrams yeah. to you and to so many others, the list is so long, um, who, and who've been either out there just beating this drum, Melanie Campbell, a black, black woman's round table. Yeah. I, mean, I can go on and on and on and on of so many powerful women um, who, were just, who literally put this on their backs. Um, how do you feel about this moment in that regard? Uh, I feel like it, what would make it unique is if after this, we are not forced to become invisible. Mm. I think the history of America is tied to black women doing just a little bit of something for everybody. Mm. There isn't a single institution that exists. There is not a single transaction that has been made. There's not a dollar that's been spent in this country that isn't connected to black women who are connected to their community. That has been the truth of America. The thing that could happen that would be unique is if we're not asked to be essential and invisible mm. anymore. And so I think that's why, whether or not I ever sit down and have some Oatly with Kamala Harris, I'm going to yell for her louder than anyone. Because at the end of the day, like she is a part of this story of what it means to hold space for things that will outlive you. What does it mean to open the door and tell people that we are deeply happy to be the folks who help you figure out like whether you're in the right space, if you have the right information, if you're going in the right direction to be a consigliere's, right? We're happy to be those people, but we're also strategists. It's why you come to us. So at the end of the day, uh, I am in the place in my life where I no longer want to write things in other people's names. Mm. And it's not just me. Like, that's the generational thing. There are decades and decades of, of men and women who have delivered us to this moment. And as a Black woman, all I can do is be unapologetic about what that means. Yeah, no, that's right. You've written, you've written recently, actually, you and Peggy Shepard written about yeah. voter suppression. Um, let's talk about that. What, what's going on with that, actually? 
Yeah, part of what was interesting about it is that in this moment where we knew we were going to be in what I'm calling the great wait, <laughs> um, delaying tactics coming from everywhere, um, part of those tactics were employed initially in Jim Crow to suppress black people, to suppress um, indigenous people, to suppress all communities of color, and they're just more covert even when we can film them, see them, and talk about them in well-written thought pieces. The state legislature and election officials have been targeting folks with voter ID laws, um, closing polling places, purging people straight out the, just uh, just taking your name out the roll and making you have to fight to prove that you are you. They have intimidated us. They have gerrymandered us. They have moved us from our own communities with, um, with maps that do not reflect where we actually are and who our communities are in order to move our votes and separate our power. That stuff has been going on forever because it's a part of systemic racism. It's how all of the stuff we won when we left the plantation got built into the next thing that we live our lives in. And that stuff has been going on um, as uh, voter suppression has risen. It was really important for Peggy and I to talk about this from different perspectives because in the multi-generational work, there's not a thing I'm doing that she didn't start doing. <laughs> and there's not a thing I will do that other people will not pick up. So thinking about voter restrictions and the idea that the communities that are facing all of this suppression are also the same black, indigenous, and people of color who have been um, uh, subject to every other kind of harm. And so being asked to be visible at this moment when we are being suppressed by the system that we are supporting, that's complicated. And I think it was, it was a start of a much longer conversation if people want to get into it about why it is we're designed into these situations over and over again and what kind of redesign we need to start um, uh, developing to get out of it. No, I mean, I love the article. I, I hope people check it out. Article by uh, Tamara and, 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 and Peggy Shepard over at We Act. And we pray actually for We Act with the passing of this Yes. And let, lift, lift yes. them up in our prayers. Um, Tamara, do you get tired of trying to explain this to white people about voter <laughs> suppression? I mean, the article was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It also seemed like you had to go down to the ABCs and the one, two, threes in the article to just hope that. <laughs> your your people who are on your side also. I mean, you, you know your enemy, but it's like you're trying to also try to explain that black people are still having voter suppression to white people. Do you get tired of that? Uh no. And part of why I don't get tired of it is because every generation we have to get into this conversation again and again. And I think uh like my DNA and all the things that I'm working with, I'm using a shorthand. <laughs> I don't got to go all the way back. And part of what I remind people is that the exact handoff from the moment of slavery created everything that we're looking at. That's a series of law from the lash law to the um, Indian Removal Act. Like we're talking from 1830 to 1985. Mm -hmm. There are a series of laws that have laid out the structural oppression of my people. So I am happy to tell my newfound friends who love climate, who want to work on environmental justice stuff because it speaks to their heart that guess what? Every benefit that has been conferred upon you came at the cost of somebody else. Nice to meet you. I'm somebody else. So, so I feel like it is useful because um, as generation one, two, and three that caused this trouble is slowly transitioning off the planet, generations four, five, and six, like there are people who we can work with because they don't have the stain of the shame from initiating it. So we could actually make some change. If it feels to me like what they will choose to do is to be comfortable rather than to make change that, that sets up agreements for the rest of us to have a good life together, then I will probably start to feel a little more exhausted. I think the thing that I'm most tired of is trying to get institutions to recognize that they built the terms of engagement, so they shouldn't be able to dictate how. Oh, now say that. Say that. What do you mean by that? Um, they they decided like you could kill a whole bunch of people and save a blade of grass and turn that into a money making hmm. institution. Like that's real. Like the idea that the history of conservation has delivered us to this moment where we have to reinsert people and planet into the business of <laughs> not dying on a fiery gas ball. That is by design. So all day long, I will continue to remind people that this is not an accident. It is design. What we are experiencing is the exact output that was that we were zoned into that we were expected to reach. The question is, are we going to seize the assets of the architects before they skate off and start selling us something different? Hmm. No, that's 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 real. You also talk about a lot about the Supreme Court, and we know that Thank demonstration you. without litigation leads to frustration. <laughs> so, in that, um, why is the Supreme Court important 
right now and what's, what's going and how that impact all the work you've been doing? Sure. So uh, as a part of my work with 350, I've been pushing and screaming and getting us to think about expansion of the court. Uh, people call it packing the court. The Supreme Court is the highest in the land. It has given us some things that would have taken longer to get historically, and it has gotten in the way of things we could have gotten a long time ago. But like any institution, it's a vehicle. What we put in it is what we get out of it. So getting equal justice under the law, um, being an interpreter of the Constitution, being another branch of government that we can go to when, like the moment we're in, corruption is rampant through the other two, like like the Supreme Court is pretty valuable. Um, there are cases that we know in our community, like Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. And um, there are uh, other cases that people are a little less familiar with unless they're deeply in this work, like Massachusetts versus EPA. The difference between whether or not racial segregation of children in public schools is important and whether or not clean air, clean water, and suing for the harms of climate change are connected is only about your advantage point. There are not all of those things built on each other. In 2015, uh, same-sex marriage was also uh, illegal. The Supreme Court delved in there. So everything that happens in the Supreme Court is a big banner, bright line decision on what we've been trying to push for at every other level. So the idea that we are facing a conservative majority that's going to decide whether climate change is real whether it cannot be, whether it can be compensated, and whether every single state that's going to carry the bag on what Exxon and Shell and all these filthy fossil fuel capitalists have done to us, like recognizing that that doesn't get solved just because we know they hurt us. We have to go to the arbiter that makes space for the Congress to throw down the laws that will move their money from, like, seize the assets of people who have hurt us and deliver that to us. That's going to take us getting involved in these conversations more than just drop, like, we drop a ballot, and that is a marker that we're going to be involved in this conversation. In order for us to get to the end, we have to care as much as the Supreme, about the Supreme Court and Congress as we do about our vote. Right. So I'm, I'm all in for us, like, um, uh, packing the court and making it thick. Mm. As, as Jabari Breesport just was tweeting the other day, I feel like if that's, if that's what we need to Stand do again to for the forward, folks in the, then we should. Say that again for the folks in the back of the room. Sure, pack the court, make it thick. Guess what? The only reason there are nine justices because because there used to be nine districts where you would argue it. There are currently 13. So at a minimum, just to be consistent, we should be thinking about adding more people because the folks who are there clearly don't represent our interests. Mm. So obviously we're going to have to go to the court for a lot of different things. This, this, this <laughs> administration is facing the door. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Um, rolled back <laughs> so much from dismantling EPA, uh, they dismantled um, FERC, they dismantled Interior, they dismantled um, the Department of Energy, they dismantled mm -hmm. every ounce of whatever can be done for the environment, and also they tried to bolster um, things regarding criminal justice to what, to, as to that, to the lies of what they've been trying to say. Um, but they've actually dismantled many things they have done for, for HUD, increasing, increasing rents for low-income people and, and housing. I mean, it's, the list goes on. And once we, yeah. begin to, once we begin to get into that, a lot of these things will go to the court. So, but right. the court has been packed, actually. Yes, um, yes it has. You know, the court has been packed. So what are your thoughts on that? Because we're going to have to go to court uh, right now immediately on things from the Paris Climate Accord to... Um, not drilling in the Arctic to literally just trying to make sure that people who are being now getting eviction notices and, and during a pandemic and the housing units um, don't get evicted. So we're going to be in court on this, a many, a myriad of different issues across. <laughs> but how do you feel about that actually? I feel like that's exactly right. People are nervous when you talk about packing the court. I feel like, what do you think is going on? Thanks to some really aggressive and inappropriate moves, Donald Trump already appointed one in four judges currently sitting in the lower courts. So before we even get to the Supreme Court, where if a state and a city are fighting, or if two municipalities are fighting, it has to go to another referee. You can't solve a problem on the level it was created. That's what they say at my church. So, so to be clear, uh, that's the arbiter for these decisions that'll be made as different parties fight about who's responsible for what's happened to us and climate change, what's happened um, to us as we live in on the street, as people are trying to focus on getting resources we all paid into that are suddenly not showing up for us. So um, after pulling off the really grimy moves that got us to 
Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, we are looking at a Supreme Court that um, has confirmed that science is a thing they're not too sure about. They're not really clear on a climate debate. Uh, Donald Trump has filled one in four. That's like a hundred vacancies that he came into. A bunch of people at every level who will deny that our pain is real, that other people are at fault, and that they need to move their assets to fix our problems. So this is like an ongoing conversation we're going to have to have for all the reasons that you mentioned. The Supreme Court, even though it's often underlooked, shapes environmental policy. There isn't a single thing that we fight for that isn't going to end up in that bigger conversation. And, and it is really a good idea for us to start becoming comfortable with the system we're in. Because if we're not ready to undo it, redo it, and start again, we got to figure out how to make it work for us. So recognizing that state and local governments are going to be suing fossil fuel companies for climate damages. That's been happening since Kivalina versus ExxonMobil in 2008, when melting island <laughs> land made people move. And they thought, well, who caused this? Why is my island suddenly unavailable for me? Oh, wait, ExxonMobil making all that money off of me. While they continue to shrink my interest and now I have to relocate. Somebody needs to pay for that. Given that our communities are consistently put into places where if we're not being killed today, we're being put on layaway to be killed tomorrow. Like this is a real thing we have to get involved in because the government is not suddenly just going to care about our interests when it's been getting funneled into relationship with fossil fuel companies because of money. So recognizing that the question of whether or not we are a fact in danger, whether greenhouse gases are ruining our health, whether being cited next to all the things that kill you, no matter how much money we have, these are all things that are going to come before the Supreme Court. And the current number of people in the configuration they are in, they're not for us. Mm. So, so if we don't respond to the fact that the courts are already full of people who by design will not see us, will not hear us, and will certainly not respond to us, our only next move, the best next move we can make is to change that reconfiguration and balance the court. And it's happened uh, seven times already. So, so people are acting brand new, but it's been going on every time we needed to make a shift so that the responses of the people at the highest court reflected us. We changed the configuration. No. And, and that's important. That's important history. Important to know, you know, right now we've kind of at this moment, this, we, we brought this ragtag coalition of folks together, like the like the Wiz. I'm gonna make sure people be clear. The Wiz, <laughs> not the Wizard of Oz. The Wiz. That was with uh, Diana Ross, Ross and Michael Jackson yeah. and uh, Nipsey, Nipsey Russell. Russell. Don't don't hate those don't, don't sleep on Nipsey yeah, Russell. Don't forget, if y'all don't know, that's <laughs> Nipsey Russell was, was, was the man. As how Nipsey Hustle got his name to get <laughs> right. in, the, in the process. So the Wiz. So we got a, like a ragtag. We got the the Black Dorothy. Uh, we got the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow right right now getting ready to face in 2021. I'm a little bit like, like thrown about how, though, they are already beginning to say that we shouldn't be aggressive. So one of the things you've been talking about, reparations. So what do you think yes. about a Green New Deal or reparations? about us and those kind of things moving forward. Yeah, so the only way forward, in my view, is climate reparations. Come on, explain that. So, and so climate reparations are the thing that people who care about climate, who care about emissions, who care about greenhouse gases and air and water and land and stewardship and all that fancy stuff that gets funded, get into the conversation with people who have been fighting to stop having their entire bodies and communities meted out for money they never get any part of. So climate reparations, if done right, supports the argument for general reparations. America was founded. All of that money that got handed over from slave owners, um, from, from the government they built to themselves when they lost their slaves was turned into phones, oil, gas, railroad. None of those transactions involved what it meant for our bodies as Black people or our land, as the people who are indigenous to this land, to be shortchanged, ignored, shamed, and then murdered, if not put into service, and then murdered. All of those transactions build everything that's in front of us. The only way we get back to a place where we can move with new agreements that serve the larger group is to connect the fact that climate is not an accident, it is a design, to reparations, which is the dirty money that came from it being returned to the rightful owners of that wealth so that they can decide what the future is going to look like. I have been pushing for, in my time at 350, really focusing on the idea that that's not just going to happen. A Green New 
New Deal, which is jobs, infrastructure, and human health. We pay for that anyway, no matter what we call it. People can act really politically scared of the words a Green New Deal, but we still going to pay for railroads. We still going to, if we don't pay for people to be healthy, we will pay to bury them. Mm. And it's very expensive over the course of someone's life of being sick and missing work and all those things that count for it. So jobs, infrastructure and human health will be paid for if we choose to do it smart and stop investing in what is hurting us stop betting against us with our common resources we can instead build the next generation of energy that creates jobs that gives people the opportunity to go to work doing things that they don't have to be ashamed of that are hurting their communities they don't have to come home with black lung in exchange for some okay health care mm. and, and a short life so i think there's a lot to be said about the fact that we have laid the framework as a movement of people for a Green New Deal, but until we build in the enforcement that everybody's so afraid of, which is the demand that somebody recognizes that harm and it sets out how they're going to stop hurting us, how they're going to promise that it won't happen again, and then restore us to as much wholeness as they can by giving us the resources and people to build something different, we are not getting there. And for me, the mechanism for that is climate reparations. It says, here are the teeth that make sure your handshake promise to stop hurting me comes with some resources so I can make decisions about my life, my family, and my community. Because we're going to have to run away from fires. We're going to have to um, flee floods. We're going to have to live our lives getting away from mold. We're going to have to move to different locations. All of that stuff's happening at the same time. And to act as if it is suddenly our fault or our cost to bear is an embarrassment. It's not even a logical thing once you start to say it outside, out loud. So it is my, it is my goal in life to make sure that we really connect on care and repair and set up the stage for what it will mean to transfer all that filthy money. We got like, I, I mean, to be quite frank, America's really good at laundering money. Mm -hmm. So if it makes people feel better, uh, we could just say that all this filthy money needs to be cleaned up so that it can go to doing the next thing. And the Green New Deal sets up the ways that people will decide what it is they need to survive what's been handed to them. Come on now, say what, say what you really mean. Come on, man. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yes, it's not, it's not good to be in polite company and just act like if we just yell um, that we have a roadmap for transitioning us off fossil fuels and creating jobs and making sure people are safe from climate disasters. But if we don't build teeth into that, it'll just be a bunch of watery promises. And so we have to get aggressive. It's made my heart feel so happy to see reparations taken off on its own in Charleston and so many in Chicago in places where we recognize that people are in the jail, under the jail, and lost their whole life and ability to have freedom over things that used to be illegal because we made a different decision. Mm -hmm. We used to put lead in our tea because it sweetened things up till we realized it poisoned folks. Mm -hmm. We used to burn our trash for um, clean energy credits because we stupidly, stupidly, stupidly thought that we, that we were getting rid of it in a harmless way. So when you know better, you do better. We have to address the past and start making the mechanisms that move people. And for me, that looks like developing policy that demands that the folks who have all that money give it back to us. That means the folks in the Hill have to stop being their collaborators. They have to start working for the people who put them in those chairs. And that's gonna take hearings and great law and real conversation and a public dialogue to make the enforcement possible that all of these judges are going to have to, to, to respond to in order to move that money into the places where it can help people. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I remember what uh, Colette Pashon Battle would say, we, we don't need a, just a green deal. We need a red, black, and green deal. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. I'm, I'm so excited to be a part of that work to start to build some of this language to help people to connect the dots because it feels like when you look at fossil fuels and environmental harm and people's health that these are separate but if you scrape off even the top layer you start to realize they're so connected and the only people who are unclear about that at this moment are decision makers because they get paid by people to see things differently and it's time for us to remember we're their bosses and they need to start seeing things together mm. describe some false climate solutions for me Oh my gosh. Um, I like to call this one, uh, um, throw, throw some dust in the air and wave it like you just don't care. Um, 
uh, whenever we want to vacuum out some some climate emissions by um, deciding that we're going to basically create a giant vacuum that magically sucks out all the stuff we don't like and puts it in the ground where it will never be disturbed. I realize that people are on some stuff and we might need to sit them down and have a conversation. There are so many false solutions, many of them market-based, not because the people who want to do it are particularly trying to pull something on us, but because they are imagining a universe where all things are equal where the law is not actively working against people, where you could put a price on someone's life, and if you extract the right price, you can fix that. Beyond the fact that market-based solutions that never, ever get to a place where it actually addresses harm, people get paid out on dividends for being poisoned with not enough money to buy one day's worth of medicine to respond to the harm that's going to haunt them the rest of their lives, however short they will be. Like Any solution that comes dressed up without the community that would be impacted by it is false. And so the litmus test for that is like when you go into a great restaurant, if I went into a soul food restaurant, there weren't any black people, I would back up faster than anybody you ever saw in your whole life. If I went to, if I went to have some Indian food and I was in a, a South Indian restaurant and it wasn't a single South Indian in there, you would see me going straight through back home to go make myself a sandwich. So I just think one way to differentiate real solutions from false solutions is who's advocating for it. Who are a group of people telling you this feels like me? This, this response to what I need and is seeing me as part of the solution and not the problem. So whether we're talking about um, CCS or DAC, all of these fancy words for just like throwing some dirt in the air, hoping it'll catch some particles and then using that to clean out carbon or putting a bunch of mirrors somewhere and expecting that mirrors won't float to the bottom of the ocean because there's animals in there, whatever's left. Like, I think we really just have to be thoughtful about whether or not the market that delivered us to brokenness can suddenly deliver us some, some money unless we change it so this is the part where my mentioning that i like to break things and put them back together comes into play no, that's important but we have a we have a climate part a part of our movement which would which would disagree with you right they could they, they, they yeah. stake their whole uh enterprise on that so what would you say to them and what would you say are some climate solutions yeah so i feel like as I mentioned, I think people have come up with ideas that on paper work well. Mm. That in paper, um, the idea of making people pay with money will slow down the market and make them think twice. Mm. But the reason people are happy to pay is because it's easy to throw money on a problem rather than deal with who you hurt. Mm. So I recognize that well-meaning people who want to do good work can uh, come up with solutions that if it were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, we'd have time to experiment with. But given that the climate decade is 2030 and we have to move all of government to stop hurting us, we don't have time for things that are um, distracting, mostly because we need to be super focused on what's going to deliver us to the future we can live in. I think it's really, really important for us to be smart about climate solutions that are built by the folks who live there, people who have expertise. We have not had droughts that we haven't been able to solve in our own community. We figured out how to recharge a well every time. It's how we've built ir irrigation and everything that this current version of what the world looks like is built on, is built on the wisdom of people who have been here before. So I think in terms of figuring out how our food systems get fixed, we stop selling off all of our interest in that to people who don't eat our food. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, we we look for climate solutions that bring in what it is we know and our expertise that don't start with bringing in ex external folks. It returns to the conversation I mentioned around my own father. Part of my view, I mean, I'm a daddy's girl. His genius was that he realized that he didn't need to get outside stuff to fix problems. Mm -hmm. He needed to go to the community and find out what they've been doing. And how, and how it is possible to help people develop norms that help them to work together. We cannot do this alone. Uh, we cannot spend money on things that don't solve our problems. We cannot give away our resources, which is our youth or the knowledge of our elders without recognizing that people are going to have to put money in the conversation to move towards what we need to mm. see. So solutions that I am supportive of um, 
I am supportive of us doing training and retraining in our own communities because people might not have the lingo down for climate science, but they feel it in the water. They see it in the food that they used to fish for that's no longer there. They have ways of working for how to restore the balance of tributaries and rivers and how to restore the soil that we've depleted things from, regenerative agriculture, which is just recharging the earth when we've extracted from it. Those are things we've been doing to feed ourselves forever. We could talk about peanuts and it would take a whole nother hour. So I do think that there are um, solutions that come from us stop not doing things like not um, paying for fossil fuels anymore, because in this limited uh, zero sum game of what we do with our money, we don't have money to keep paying for stuff that doesn't work for us and enough money to build what it's going to take. We don't have enough time to listen to the people who've been driving us in the wrong direction and keep ignoring community. So every single solution, whether it's building in community, um, making sure things are local, starting with community solar so that people who live in whatever configuration they're in can stop buying into the system that's killing us and buy into ways that, that make them whole, that allow them to have clean air and clean water, and to be masters of what happens with their own money. So I'm here for anything that involves community, and we can start with community solar, we could start with next generation energy, we could end with uh, anybody who tells you that they're for nuclear, we should have a talk, let's not, let's not read, let's not go back to that. Because the bill, not the science guy answered to it is until you can figure out where the trash goes, we shouldn't be making any more of it. So, so just, just to lay out that there are uh, magical things and magical thinking that will deliver us to the end of the climate decade with not a damn thing different. Or we could just listen to people who've been making a way out of no way about what they need and respond to them with resources. Well, you know, you are amazing, you know, and I, so far, so good. And I respect you so much and admire you for all you do um, and who you are. I guess my question is, you know, you work for an organization um, that I, I, I admire, I, I, you know, deep, I've always, I worked with 350 myself for many, many years at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty much a white organization, right? Yeah. Um, and it, and as you're talking about these solutions, you're talking about solutions that are going to require us to not be a siloed, segregated mm-hmm. climate movement moving forward. Um, I know for me at the Hip Hop Caucus, you know, we have majority uh, black people. We have white people who work at the caucus. Um, but I, well, I actually, I sometimes feel like we are more mindful of the white people who work at the caucus because we don't want them to feel like, and I maybe it's just me, I don't know, but we we be like, it's like 95, 90% black at the caucus. And we'd be like, people who are not black, we'd be like, we'd be like, you okay? You know, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be mindful. I don't see that same thing on the flip side. It's funny when it'd be like 90% white, they'd be like, not, not, not be caring about the black folk who work there the same way, it'd be interesting. Um, so my question to you is that, one, how do you feel um, about that? Um, do you feel safe? I asked this to uh, Adrian, Dr. Hollis, about that. Yes, my sister. Yeah, no, please folks, go back and check out amazing conversation with her we had um, on this from and with, at UCS. But um, so I guess my question for you, is, it's the same. How do you feel? Do you feel like you have to, you got to spend a lot of your time explaining stuff? Or you got to, you know, you got to watch what you say. Or I mean, just, you know. I don't. I, I can tell you, I don't watch what I say, but I also don't stick around long enough to get burnt. So, so what I would say is that I have half my life, I'm 41. I've been in this work half my life at this point. I have moved around every three years for 21 years doing this work. One, because you can, you can learn from every kind of situation. But two, you can't sacrifice your whole soul for other people's work. So what I would say is that in every place that I've ever been, I've learned something about how it happens, how it works, how our community is viewed by people. Um, I think 350.org, the reason I came here is because they ask good questions. Also because as a fairly young organization at 10 or 11 years old, it doesn't have 142 years of blowing off my community, extracting us and then asking us to cry on camera. So so for all the things that it gets right and all the things that it does wrong, I felt like coming here as the, um, I guess I'm the highest ranking African-American in the history of one of these organizations. The reason it happened was because they asked the question, can this work? The, question, the, the long-term answer to that, it will take generations to answer whether it worked. But I do think in the climate decade, being unapologetic about what my community needs, showing up in ways that are really quite honest about 
what frontline, fence line, and the people who make up my life need to survive the climate crisis, that is a thing that can happen. There is no safety in that because the entity that, they, that any organization exists in is one where a race forward, like a real clarity on critical race theory, what race is, how it serves as a vehicle to move money away from my people and to everybody else. Like those are co real conversations. I like being at 350 because we get to engage in that. But what it means is that I'm also in a first of its kind experiment. And for, for this experiment to work, I got to be surrounded by my people. So 80% of my leadership team are black indigenous and people of color. Mm. That's because, but it also means we have problems we've never had before because having a black woman at the top of the work in an entirely white founded organization is going to create differences. People want me to lead like I'm a white man and I will never be that, nor do I want to. I wake up every day feeling really great about being me. And so, so flagging that there are expectations around what leadership looks like, that's not a place of safety. I have told every person I've ever mentored that you get paid what it takes to leave, not what it takes to stay. And so, so you better make sure that that money is right because at the end of the day, it's a series of experiments. And in your work and life, you have to figure out who are you willing to experiment with. 350 has been working before I came. Part of my entree into 350 was the idea that um, they had a justice and equity department with a budget and a person who was not me. So the invitation to come in and do leadership work that's visionary about big ideas didn't also require me to die on a hill where I teach people to be slightly less racist as a part of my job. Like I can be the energy nerd that I am, the environmental law and policy wonk that I am because I work alongside a team of people who are making sure that equity is in the work, that we ask in partners how we show up, that we don't just throw money on the table like the kind of person you meet at the end of the night at the bar. We wanna be someone you could take home and potentially introduce to your family if it works out. So like. Some of that's looking at the structure of how environmental organizations have shown up. Whether or not it will be successful is a big question, but it's a good place to try out some experiments. And I do think that um, we don't have the word wilderness in our name. We do not uh, attempt to do any conservation work. Those are enough proofs that like it's a good place to try a thing, which is like I used to live in the Virgin Islands as a part of... Um, my my life and and there they would say you got to try a thing and so like the idea that i'm at 350 trying a thing and they're trying a thing um around whether or not a black woman can lead in a way that's not in any way like a white man and still have tons to give is an open question hmm. and and whether it works or not i will still be an advocate in this work from from my first to my last because i'm here for my people not a patient no, that's real no, no and i and i believe that I guess the other thing I would just say that have you seen, we know that the reality is sometimes no, no cash, no cause. And so mm -hmm. reality that people need resources and infrastructure. We also see as organizations go black and brown, um, mm -hmm. the money goes out the door. We see funders give yeah. the church finger and go out the back <laughs> of, the, of, 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 the, of the process. And so on one hand, um, people will be, oh, this is wonderful. Yes, climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice, and then this is wonderful. We need to talk about being anti-racist and white fragility. Oh, yes. But on the other hand, when it comes down for funding, they stop funding, and then people get scared. And that, that's, that's a real piece, because all of a sudden the funding that was there to do certain things, to organize pretty much on college campuses or people around, they, they're no longer seeing, you know, organizing and different hoods and boroughs the same way. Are you, as a, as a leader of an organization, are you, are you, do you, are you worried about that? Um, so I think about it. So funders are, as, as a group of people, a bunch of folks who caused your problems and then give you the money that it costs for them to um, buy toilet paper and buy coffee grounds to deal with some function of that. Right. So like the whole idea of philanthropy is that I'm going to write off some of the guilt for that thing that I built and did that made me really wealthy. So even to get your head in a space where you ask for that kind of money, um, you have to think about what is the end benefit? The idea of black, indigenous and people of color getting into this work at the level of strategy is not about us getting what we deserve is about recognizing that the future of the work involves us. We are in the future. So this whole model of work doesn't happen if we're not in it. That is investable. 
I think the idea that if you care about the sage grouse or a piece of land or um, whether or not a stream flows in the direction that it's supposed to, there won't be any people who, are, who care about that or who are stewarding it if you and I making investments in Black, Indigenous, and people of color because the future looks like us. So I do think part of it is how you think about your approach. Some of it is recognizing that uh, racists are going to keep being racist until America deals with that. Uh, and, and really starting to be strategic in how we frame the problems that we solve. Because asking people to stop uh, making their whole lives about fossil fuels, petrochemicals, and plastics that are so much a part of your life that you can't get into or out of a room without having petrochemicals and fossil fuels in your life and in your body. Like, we can, if we are bold enough to ask people to disassociate themselves from that, we better be ready to ask people to stop being racist. And that includes philanthropists. Mm. Not to mention that as people of color, we have our own wealth. Mm. So we need to stop pretending that all the money flows in the direction of, of people Facts. who don't look like us. Facts. So to so it's a it's a hard road to hoe, and you definitely right about the idea that like for folks who want to fund philanthropy that looks like them, I do not make them comfortable. I definitely am insensitive to racists. I make that hurt their feelings every day. Yeah. And so if you happen to be a racist with money, we're probably not going to get on along any better than if we did. Yeah. And so recognizing that we have to build ways of working that build on our strengths and not what other people have decided are not our strengths is the only way to go. And fingers crossed. Mm. My life is an experiment. I'll let you know when I, when I figure it out. I answer. Mm. Well, man, I, have, I just got two more questions for you. One question is, if what's, what's, what's next up for 315 and if folks want to get involved with that work, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 350 is doing a lot to focus on some of this. Uh, one of the internal goals is transforming its base so that it's multiracial and multigenerational. I'm doing intentional anti-racism work and just teaching people that you can care about climate and not be a racist jerk. Like that's very real between the solidarity school program where we bring people in to think that through um, to the black indigenous and people of color climate network of leaders that we're building. Um, some of that showed up in Minnesota. Like the head of Minnesota 350 is a black man. Why? Because I'm working with that group of people about what the work needs to look like in our analysis of what they were doing. We started to work together on what the leadership should be looking like and what kind of resources would help Minnesota 350 to be responsible. It's one of the most down group of people you ever met in your life. And in their own decision making process, they realize their leadership needs to be a black mm. man in order to really be effective. And in not a minute too soon. So some of our work is stuff you see, like our local groups that have strong partnerships and really making sure they recognize that Jedi is not just a cool thing that greets you in a club, but it really what helps you do the work in a way that's not extractive. We will continue training people on that. We will make sure people recognize that the future is black and brown and you should probably get into that. Um, make sure that they don't do climate, like race neutral climate work. Internally, our staff makeup in three years, we've transformed so that a majority of the folks that work with us are black and brown, indigenous, trans and, and transgender. So thinking through um, programming that speaks to our issues, demanding that we stop funding stuff that's killing us and the us is a larger group of people that's ever been. Um, that's training, that's education, that's leadership incubation, the things that have always happened at 350. It just has more melanin. Mm. So, so, so check us out at 350.org, click on the join us tab. And if there isn't um, a group, there are 175 local groups in the U.S. working with 350, 300 across the globe. That's Africa, Asia, Latin America, um, we, Turkey. There are so many places where you can find us that it would be harder to not find us. So click on 350.org and look at join us and we will try to inveigle you in what we're trying no, to do. No, that's right. This is, this is my <laughs> last question. Well, again, thank you for being on the coolest show here. Uh, and, you know, yes, definitely look forward to having you back and hearing what's going on. And But this is my, my last question for you really is around what this year has been. 2020 has been one of those years. Some years bring questions and some years bring answers. 2020 is one of those years where it has brought questions and answers um, for sure. And so as we come to the end of 2020, um, fast forward to 2021, um, where do you see yourself and where do you see this movement? Wow. In 2021, I'm throwing down to make sure the next administration does what it says it's going to do. Uh, from what seat doing what stuff, we'll never know. But I do think, um, I do think 
I will be in corners pushing for policy that responds to the demands that we've set. Like making sure that not a penny more goes doing stuff that's killing us. We stop betting against ourselves. Some of that stuff's going to have to get written down somewhere so these institutions can start carrying it out. So for me, I will be deeply working on those pieces. Um, for uh, the movement in general, it, like I love a parking lot party as much as anybody else, but it's only one tactic. We're going to have to dig deeper into the, into the canon of things we can do to motivate it um, real change because after 10 or 11 years of just focus on climate justice, we have not seen those narrow hallways produce work that looks like us, that feels like us, that's responding to us. So the movement is going to have to become less white, uh, less siloed, more focused on people working at multiple levels, uh, no longer telling stories where any single group is a lone wolf solving problems, uh, or that it started doing that out of the middle of nowhere. Um, I always say that climate justice is a leaf on a tree on a branch of social justice work. So successful work will mean reconnecting to those communities that started this work and working in partnership, not extractive work, but like partnership that says, this is what we know and here's what you know and how together do we build a pathway to the future. So I'm looking to see some real bills get thrown down. I know Movement for Black Lives is working on the Breathe Act. There's the Red, uh, Black and Green New Deal. There's calls for climate reparations. Like there, there is enough here that we can really jack up the folks who delivered us to this moment if we stay focused on our goal, which is being in the future. Mm. That's Tamarato O'Loughlin, North American Director of 350 Action. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.